everybody, I'm Dr. Megan Hanlon, and welcome to Unraveling Science, the podcast where I speak to leading scientific researchers and ask them who they are, what they do, and why they are so passionate about doing it. Throughout this series, I hope to welcome you all into the world of research and to really get a glimpse of the people behind the lab coats, from immunology to astronomy, cancer biology to bioengineering, and much more. So, if you're ready, sit back and let's begin Unraveling Science. All right, so I'm joined today by Sean Mooney, a leading researcher in the fields of astrophysics and astronomy, currently conducting his PhD research in UCD in a project funded by the Irish Research Council. So Sean studies supermassive black holes using data from the LOFAR telescope and is also a big advocate of science communication himself, involved with both Point of Science and Bright Club. So yeah, thanks again for coming on to chat to me, Sean. Yeah, no problem. It sounds good. Um, so I suppose let's just start in. Um, what were you like in school? Were you always interested in kind of the astrophysics and space side of things or did you have aspirations to be, I don't know, a, a vet or, or a doctor back then? Oh gosh, no, not a vet or a doctor. I was, <laughs> I remember actually, I really loved biology, but was put off as soon as they were like, okay, let's, uh, you know, dissect a heart or whatever. I was like, nah, I'm out. I was into like drawing the diagrams, you know, the really neat diagrams of the, the organs, but like, I didn't, couldn't be a biologist for that reason. But uh, I definitely wouldn't, I definitely didn't like physics in secondary school. I mean, for me, there's the distinction between like physics and astrophysics or astronomy, because for astronomy, you know, you need to have a basis in physics. So you don't really learn a lot of astronomy in, like for the leaving cert, because you can't just start learning about black holes. You have to learn how gravity works, how, you know, just really basic mechanical systems like springs and that kind of thing. So like a lot of leaving cert physics is quite boring from my point of view, because you're just like, you know, getting these little trolleys and putting them on ledges and watching them collide and adding two and two and working out the velocity and, and I like I I just didn't find it that compelling. So um, so yeah, because I, I did the general science degree then in in Trinity with a view to doing like you know biology, geology, physics. Like I wasn't too pushed on it. But I think my goal in in secondary school or like what kind of motivated motivated me to do it was because I just I was so confused that like you go into biology and you learn you learn about like bacteria cells, all right, and they're tiny. And then you go to physics and learn about atoms. I'm like, yeah, but they're both tiny. Like how many atoms are in a bacteria cell? Or like there's no, like they, they didn't really talk to each other. Or there was so many things that I didn't understand how the two subjects, and I guess chemistry probably goes in there nicely as well. Or things in physics like, um, like how come applying heat, you know, turns dough into bread and then applying <laughs> more heat turns bread into toast. Like what's that about? Like yeah. I was just so, like, and you can't, I suppose this is probably just before Wikipedia came online. So there was no really good way um, of knowing. So I just think I, I didn't have a very good understanding of the world or, or how generally things worked. Or if somebody, you know, told me something, if I, I wouldn't be able to say, okay, that's actually physically possible or not possible. So I guess like I just wanted to learn science generally to kind of get an understanding of like how stuff works, like how the world physically works why some materials are stronger than others that kind of thing um, and that kind of led me into astronomy but no I wasn't like I didn't have a telescope when I was 10 and wasn't in the back garden looking at stars and I don't know any constellations in fact I think like the first time I looked through a telescope I was like 
you know, I had an undergraduate degree already in astrophysics, you know, because it's not, not wholly necessary. And like, I wouldn't be able to pick out most stars in the sky. So, so I'd say I'm a bad astronomer, but you know, <laughs> I, I know astrophysics now. So like kind of when you started your undergrad in Trinity, it was more just a global sense of science, like were you kind of leaning towards one subject more than the other or did that come kind of throughout the degree? Yeah, like uh, I really enjoyed biology mostly, but then yeah, like I had to do some dissecting and I was like, this is not for me. And then I did geology for a couple of years with there's a professor there, um, Ian Sanders, and like the guy, is just, he's so enthusiastic, like he's he's brilliant and he just convinces you that I want to be a geologist. And like, I was kind of really into geology for a couple of years. But then, you know, like most of, if you want to do geology as a career, often you can end up, you know, you know, working for like petrol companies, mm. like looking for oil and that kind of thing. And that didn't really sit right with me either. I didn't particularly want to do that. So yeah, like astronomy was interesting. But again, I d- didn't want to rely, go too much into like physics of, um, plastics or there's a lot of like nanophysics as well in trinity or even quantum physics like was particularly like just astronomy drew to me so i kind of like i definitely kept all my my options open as long as possible and and then yeah went for astrophysics in the end so like i think it was the opposite story of you know knowing what i wanted from from an early degree and then even after my undergrad i went and worked in a in a company for three years in business um, and then went back and then did a master's in space science and technology. And then from then did a PhD in astrophysics. So I still like, <laughs> you know, have had experience outside academia and, uh, yeah, like astronomy is nice. It, it's good, but I guess I didn't have like a super strong drive for it, particularly when I was young. And um, do you have a telescope now? It's a, Ireland is not a good place to be an astronomer because, the one thing you can't do with like optical astronomy is, is look up when there's clouds. And in Ireland, there tends to be clouds, you know, 80% of the time. Um, and then apart from that, you know, it can be quite cold at night and then so like, or wet, like, so you're out there at like two o'clock in the morning. And then apart from that, you know, we're not very high above sea level. So if you go somewhere like, you know, chilly, we're like thousands of meters above, there's no clouds, the weather is pretty warm and you can see the Milky Way, like you have the exact opposite experience in Ireland. So like you really have to graft, you know, work for it. But yeah, I do have a telescope. I was, I was bought one and I, yeah, I like to use it a few times, but uh, yeah, I, I just, at this stage, I kind of stick to the professional instruments. But I think what the, like the, my favorite parts of astronomy rather than, you know, looking through a telescope and kind of spotting, like it is cool. There's a, observatory in Dublin called Dunsink and they have public open nights and I went there and they have a big telescope and that's quite old now but you can see the moons around Jupiter and they're moving around and it really is quite cool to just see like Mm. dots going around each other but like a lot of astronomy now on a professional level is driven by like software data analysis statistics you know like looking at millions and millions of sources and those would be my most interesting or the things I enjoy doing most like programming and stats and that kind of thing so yeah god okay because I actually had to learn a bit of programming at the end of my PhD and when I say like learn a bit I got someone to show me like how to do one program and I copied it but yeah like how do you find kind of I think it's python and stuff that you use like how did you learn that or or, like you know how do you apply that then I suppose in your research yeah it's kind of um I, I learned it just by lack of choice so when I started my PhD you know, there was the, it's the tool that people use and, 
you just have to learn and you start by Googling a lot. And I still Google things a lot and you just kind of learn as you go. So I was never taught it formally. And I think if, you know, you did computer science in college, you might have a much more, much more respect for how things should code should be written and programs should look. Whereas like, you know, if you just learn it by, as you go, you kind of develop your own set of how things work, but yeah, you just kind of need to use it because like the data sets we deal with now could easily be like in the millions of millions of like astronomical sources, millions of stars. And like the files could be, you know, tens of terabytes, if not more. So they're just such big data sets. Like there's no way you can, there's no other way to really gain any insight about what's going on other than programming and, and a lot of like just command line, like text-based tools because like my laptop isn't good enough to do any, analysis like like every morning i log on to computers at ucd where there's like a much more powerful computer that's racked up properly and you know so i just log on to that computer from wherever i am um, and do all the work there but you know it's it's all just command line based input so you know you're just yeah you're just forced to to pick it up it's a skill you don't really have a choice and i'd say nearly more important than anything else because you're not taught a lot of programming in your undergrad that if you wanted to go into astronomy the best thing you could do is become a very fluent programmer and then export that knowledge across like because that's kind of a gap at the moment where python has been developed and on other code but um but it's not really in the curriculum a lot and especially in leaving cert as well people i don't know how much programming there is now but certainly i learned like nothing in school at all god yeah and like just kind of going back as well so you finish your undergrad and then you didn't kind of go straight into a master's or the PhD, you went into business. And how was that? And then like, why did you decide to go back into academia and then go back into kind of learning all this from nearly from scratch again, especially the coding, I suppose? Yeah, I know it's, it's weird because, you know, you don't have to obviously do a lot of like taught modules in your PhD, but it's kind of implicit that, you know, your undergrad was recent, but I'm, you know, doing things and I'm like, I did a course on this in 2009 or something, you know, so it's very hard to recall the knowledge. But the reason, yeah, I mean, after my undergrad, the reason I went and got a job was because I was just kind of ready to, you know, just earn earn proper job, move out of home properly. And so, I, yeah, I was a business analyst for a few years, and that was really great fun in terms of just getting experience when I was relatively young. Uh, and you still get to use a lot of, you know, like I just, the things I enjoyed doing, like um, programming, that kind of thing. But then I realized after a couple of years that it wasn't uh, there wasn't much a career path ahead of me in the like the role I was in, so I thought I would go back and just like upskill in an in an area. Um, so I did a master's in in space science and technology. So it was physics based master's at UCD. Um, and like another benefit was like when I graduated from my undergrad, it was the height of the financial crisis. And if you graduate in a recession and you get a job often that will determine your trajectory mm. actually for like 40 years past that, like your starting level, because it is an incremental uh, effect every year. So there's, I think it's like Malcolm Gladwell or one of those, I think one of his books, he was just saying that like the best thing you can do is graduate when the economy is strong. So I was like, look, I'll go back to college. I <laughs> did, you might see where this is going because I'm about to finish up this year. But uh, yeah, I did my master's. And that went well enough and there was some research involved in it that I um, got funding from UCD and the IRC to, to do a PhD on the same topic. But yeah, like, so I'm due to complete now in, in about a month in 
in a terrible recession, but uh, at least at least I've been, I have a job lined up for afterwards already. But yeah, it's not astronomy based, so so I'll be using a lot of the skills I learned. But yeah, I'll be stepping away from astronomy as well. God, okay. Well, I suppose before you step away, kind of give me a an insight into what your research is, and maybe broadly speaking, the field, because, you know, I'm a biologist and some of the kind of topics that you'll be talking about, I won't be familiar with. I mean, I'll try. <laughs> um, but yeah, so maybe just the field of astronomy and astrophysics and then how your kind of research ties into that. Yeah. So I suppose first the distinction between astronomy and astrophysics for me would just be astronomy is, you know, going out and knowing like constellations or using a telescope and, and you know, looking at the stars, whereas astrophysics is trying to understand basically why things shine, you know, there's a lot of things in the universe and all we can do is look up and say, why is that shining? But why is that shining? And, you know, in astronomy, all you can actually do is, is measure how bright things are anyway. So even though astrophysics sounds complicated and like you see on the news, there might be, you know, some black holes people took a picture of or building like fancy simulations of, like all that is ultimately based on just light we detect from our telescope. So we actually, there's not a lot of information coming in. And then we just apply physics formulas to basically understand what's going on. But we're, you know, in the, in the solar system, the sun is at the center. Uh, so people study the sun, there's a branch of astronomy for that. Then uh, in the Milky Way with us, there's about 100 billion other stars, just like the sun. And, you know, a good section of people will study things in the Milky Way. So like other stars like the sun, uh, what happens after stars die. So some of them turn into black holes and there's different types of stars and that kind of thing. Um, or also there's, if you're interested in, you know, exoplanets and astrobiology, I suppose would be one of the crossover subject here where people mm. are looking at planets going around other stars. And as the planet goes in front of the other stars, you can look at the light shining through the bit of atmosphere on those other planets. And then you can use that to kind of, tell with like spectroscopy or something like what kind of chemicals are in their atmosphere and then you can infer from that if it's habitable so like okay. that's kind of how they know if like oh there's a planet that could have like human life you know these many light years away it's just it's just basically the same experiments we do on earth except looking at other planets but all that stuff is still quite quite local to the earth and that it's all in our galaxy it's all in the milky way there are like 100 billion other galaxies just like the milky way and you know they're getting further away. They could be like 5 billion, you know, light years away, you know, and, and that's kind of what I study. So at the center of each galaxy, there's a supermassive black hole. So just in the way as we go around the sun, every star in the solar system is going around one big black hole at the center of, of the, the galaxy. So like the sun at the moment is traveling around Sagittarius A, our the black hole at the center of our galaxy. And so, um, yeah, I look at the light coming from other galaxies and they're so far away that you can't see anything, you know, in terms of detail, you can just detect some light like coming from the entire galaxy. But in terms of like distance, like they're you know, obviously extremely big things, but extremely far away. And then on the kind of just past that, I suppose the branch of astronomy would be cosmology or people who are studying, you know, the Big Bang or the like what happened before the Big Bang or the like fabric of space and time, the kind of... Um, where things kind of get very theoretical and we don't have a lot of experiments to, to go off. So like astronomy is kind of a big subject in the sense that everything outside the earth is astronomy. And yeah. it, it's also like the most of the, the universe. But um, 
Yeah, so specifically what I'm doing is looking at black holes at the center of these other galaxies and looking at the light coming from them. So there's this weird, this weird thing where I think we, you can imagine um, a black hole, like you've seen interstellar or something, like swallowing up loads of material, kind of swirls around it, like um, if you pull a plug from a sink, mm. like water going down. But if you take a radio telescope and you look at it, so you're looking at the radio waves coming from the black hole, there's actually like two jets of plasma shooting out of the black hole. So they're called like relativistic jets. So they're just basically jets of plasma shooting out of the black hole at almost the speed of light. And it it looks really like science fiction-y kind of stuff. (laughs) And, you know, all of this stuff, the purpose of my research is to try and understand uh, how they're formed and, and how these jets arise and what happens after they ultimately like dissipate. But like, for me, it's just kind of weird that matter is just in space and then it just like coalesces into like very ordered, structured things like jets and black holes and spinning things. Like this, the order just kind of you know arises. So I think it's it's weird that it's not just big clouds of nothing stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like, this might be a silly question, but like when you, you know, use these radio telescopes to measure these jets, do you look at them daily or like, what are you trying to find out that's different each time you look? Yeah. So some people look at things daily and like, depending on what telescope you use, like you could expect to see something. So the, the one thing is if we're looking at a jet of plasma, that's, you know, 10,000 light years long. That means it takes light 10,000 years to travel from one end to the other. So that means if you want to see, you know, you're not going to see any changes kind Mm. of on a scale smaller than that. And I guess it's just classic, like the bigger things are, the longer it takes for them, you know, to change. Um, But the reason like telescopes, I suppose, are still in business is because there's so many things to look at. (laughs) And, you know, like the telescope we use called, it's called LOFAR and it's part of it is in, in Burr. So just to explain that, with a telescope, the bigger it is, the better your resolution. And that's kind of intuitive enough as well with cameras, you know, like the, just the bigger your dish or the bigger your point. But there comes a point for a radio telescope where it's the telescope's just going to be too big. Um, and there are dishes that they blow the top off a mountain and build a telescope into the mountain top just in order to be able to build a dish big enough. But eventually it becomes a point where gravity will just not let you build a structure that large. So LOFAR is kind of a next generation telescope where they build parts of the telescope all across Europe. So it's not a completed dish. There's a little part in Burr in in Ireland. There's some in the Netherlands, some in France, uh, England. And uh, you can use all of those individual small parts together and essentially just fill in the gaps with enough computing power and maths. So like this wasn't possible, you know, 20 years ago, but now you can have a lot of data, like, you know, thousands of uh, terabytes of data churning in and, and be able to fill in the gaps that way. So it's like a software based telescope um, in that sense. But your question was to change things change from day to day. So with LOFAR, they, they don't. The, the resolution LOFAR can get um, will be the equivalent to like if we're in... Dublin now, wherever you might be. If you had a newspaper in like London or Paris, like LOFAR's resolution is sufficient that you could read probably the print from that kind of distance. It's like a few hundred kilometers away to be able to resolve. So that's the level of detail you can resolve. 
uh, I think it's also like the width of a hair at about like five or 10 meters away. So like it's, it's quite fine detail, but then on the mm. sky, the objects we're looking at, still that amounts to like a huge distance actually in these galaxies. And so like from day to day, we wouldn't see um, much change. Okay, yeah. See, I suppose in a way, like talking about these topics, sometimes it could be hard to kind of wrap your head around, you know, that out in these galaxies, there are these black holes. But like, I suppose maybe for people who aren't familiar, but like, do they ever interact with the Earth or with other systems in, in, our, in, our, in the galaxies? Or, or how does that kind of all intertwine together? Yeah, so there's not really anything special about black holes. You know, the, the size of the the planet, uh, like planet Earth, determines how strong the gravity is. And you know this intuitively from, you know, you go, if people are on the moon, the gravity is weaker. And if you go to, you know, some other planets, I think in interstellar, actually, they go to a planet where the gravity is stronger, I think. And so depending on the size of the lump of stuff you're on, the strength of the gravity. And essentially, a black hole is just a, a place where the gravity was so strong that that even like light couldn't escape the surface so like it's just so dense that it it just implodes in on itself and people say that you know we don't know what's in black holes obviously we don't know much about them because we can't look in we can't send anything in and our maths just stops working at that point so there are equations for how the world works and you know it's fairly acceptable that if the same rules that would govern how things fall on earth should also apply, you know, in other places in the universe. And it has to, otherwise, like, there's no, we can't infer anything from looking out at space. Like, you have to assume it's the same rules everywhere. Mm. But for black holes, in black holes, it doesn't work. So, like, the equations, you just kind of end up dividing by zero and you get a nonsensical answer. So, like, we don't actually have good physics to understand what's happening in black holes. But in terms of how to interact with, with us, like, or anything else, there's not a lot special about them like if you take the sun and you replace the sun with a black hole that's the same weight as the sun we would just keep going around it like you don't get sucked in anymore like there's not like a vacuum cleaner effect <laughs> we'll just travel around it the same way we go around the sun except there would be no light obviously yeah uh, after after eight minutes but like they're just something really dense, so much so that, yeah, light can't escape. And that was, uh, I think I'm right, that that's what Stephen Hawking was kind of famous for, wasn't it, his study of, of black holes. It's mad to think that, you know, he kind of was a, like a very famous scientist in this area. And then, you know, there's so many scientists around the world, you know, that we've kind of come so far, but also we still don't know a lot about that area. Um, and then I also, like, I'm wondering, with regard to kind of this plasma that you're talking about that comes out of black holes, what are you looking for in them? What exactly are you measuring? And then when you go on your computer, what data are you calculating? Just to kind of get a sense of, you know, how your day-to-day is. Yeah, no, that's a fair point because there's a, a disparity between like, you watch a documentary about space and then you're like, I'll do that. But then, you know, your day-to-day obviously isn't like, you know, I play the telescope and look at the black hole and see, yep, it's getting bigger. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just on your comment about Stephen Hawking, like that's totally accurate in that, like, I guess there's just something about you're always pushing the frontier of knowledge a bit. And then you would just hope that while, you know, we're still confused, we're confused about more important things or <laughs> more, you know, there's a, there's an incremental confusion. Maybe um, more that you know what you're confused about now. Maybe back then they didn't know what they were confused about, you know? Yeah, yeah, complete. But like, yeah, like any kind of, black hole stuff is is ultimately on on a frontier of 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 what we know 
but my yeah my day-to-day isn't spent doing anything really like that at all so like the data we have it's you know a huge amount of, of of data so like we have a telescope say we take a picture of the sky okay and then one this data is recorded centrally in the netherlands somewhere and i want to get it to dublin to do to look at it and the data is so large that it that takes like two weeks and just to travel through the internet to your to uh, to us and um, so there's some things you can do to speed that up and then one of the massive problems with radio astronomy is it's it's just like optical astronomy where if you look up at a star and they twinkle and the reason for that is the atmosphere is causing it to twinkle so that effect happens at radio telescopes as well except it's, it's a lot worse so you have to correct for the the atmosphere which means you have to build like models of how, how many electrons you think are in the atmosphere at every point and and how that's changing over time and then apply that correction to your data set so so that your images stop like moving around all over the place so there's a lot of like calibration and kind of analysis you have to do uh, to tidy up kind of mm. images like that but then just say you have your your final image of the sky so you might have a jet of plasma and it does actually look like a, a jet of plasma a radio jet and it's and it's pretty cool but i guess then the science from that you have to wonder okay so how are they shining so in the jets there is a load of electrons and when you accelerate electrons they give off synchrotron radiation so give off type of radiation and that's what we think we detect so then that would lead to okay so how are the electrons accelerating and then you know one theory might be okay there's magnetic fields there um because electrons are charged so magnetic fields could cause them to accelerate and then it's okay well is the magnetic field like what kind of magnetic field could exist there or how would that because you would get out your favorite <laughs> textbook on magnetic fields and you know run through equations and see how strong could a magnetic field be in space that just would have spontaneously generated and how would it have generated and how fast could it accelerate an electron? And if it did accelerate electrons to near the speed of light, like does that match up with what we would see? Or And so you're kind of building building up theories that way. But mm-hmm. as I was kind of saying earlier, like you, have, you just have to assume that obviously the physics that it governs, you know, a galaxy that's, you know, 10 billion light years away is the same physics that that takes place here, um, which is kind of cool, but, but yeah, but that's like kind of the bottom assumption. So like, yeah, the day-to-day ends up being maths because even if I get those equations out, you know, I, I often you wouldn't solve them with a pen and paper. You would just put them into a program and because they mightn't be able to be, you couldn't solve them, you know, analytically or you'd have to solve it analytically. So you'd have to just do simulations and then, you have to model everything. And, and so, yeah, it, there's a lot of stuff to be done. So you're kind of, a lot of your day-to-day is kind of computer-based or laptop-based. Like your experiments are very different from the experiments I might run in, or like in my kind of wet lab setting. Um, and how do you find that, you know, and I suppose on the back of COVID as well, I'm sure you worked from home a lot. Yeah, it's like 100% laptop-based. And the, yeah, I guess there's... The thing about astronomy is, like, in physics, like, say, at CERN, that's probably the most, um, I don't know, explosive experiment that we can we can do. Like, that's what the amount of power we can generate. But the stuff that happens in space, you know, you can find these, like, labs 
essentially. Like we look at a galaxy and we can say, what if the conditions were like this? What happens? And like, so in a way, like, yeah, you're a galaxy is a lab, you know, and you're looking at that and you're saying, under those conditions, what kind of physics happens? And there are conditions that you couldn't simulate on Earth, mm. you know, anywhere near. So like completely that we don't have, or I don't have experiments like that. And, you know, so much data is open source now. You don't even really, like you could get away without even having time on telescopes. So you don't need your own observations even. Or So like the data is all there. And yeah, like I would just log on to my computer and type all day, uh, like programming, coding, either to like mainly to do analysis. So it would always just be to, okay, how do I make this image sharper? Do I, or you might make an image and then you see something and you're like, is that real? Or is that like a, you know, a cloud that caused some interference? So, you know, it's, it's a lot of intricacies, but all ultimately done in, in like programming. And like I, as I said, like I, would log on to computers that are much more powerful to do the analysis than I have available in, on my laptop. Um, sometimes in the Netherlands and sometimes in UCD, but even the computers in UCD, I wouldn't be ever sitting beside them. So like I would always be logging on remotely and, and before COVID I was working at home for a few months before that, just because like there's really no difference, you know, there's no benefit at all to, to being in a lab other than for like the social routine and the setting for that but um yeah like my day-to-day is is unperturbed entirely god yeah it's mad i suppose like in the kind of immunology world or the world i'm in kind of all research essentially stopped for three months which is a you know a big worry for us but that's great that you can kind of <laughs> continue on um, and i'm also wondering kind of like i suppose firstly what's your why do you love kind of what you do and astrophysics and kind of what drives that passion but then on the flip side you know what's the most frustrating aspect of either the field you're in or just academia in general like what do you find stressful about that i guess it's it's the 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 challenges with astronomy i presume would just export to immunology or any other field in that it's like funding 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 you need to do more with less and and especially because like questions often that are astronomy based you know fall into this blue sky science kind of category where you can't really end a funding application by saying and this will cure cancer because it's just like then we will know how big that jet was on that black hole like <laughs> so there's you know you, you don't know the benefit or at least we might you know if there's a benefit it won't come out for you know a, a long time mm-hmm. it would and the thing that like universities often would like is a spin-out company. So you develop some software that could be used in business to do some machine learning or something, but it's not actually just the knowing for the sake of knowing. Yeah. Um, but to be honest, like on the flip side, that's one of the nicest things about certainly the way my PhD is structured, but, um, but astrophysics as well, that there's just this freedom to, yeah, actually, what is that about? Let's just figure that out. And you don't have to kind of account for, well, is this like valuable or useful? Like it just has to be interesting. And so you end up just always doing something interesting because if you don't find it interesting, you can just do some look for something else. And, and yeah, like personally, I, as I was saying, I enjoy the, the kind of statistics of it and the, the programming as well and just what you can do and, and what the, the thing about like 
humans is, you know, we weren't built to do astronomy and that we can't conceive of how big the universe is or how old it is. You know, mm. we were made to like hunt and live long enough to procreate and then that that's it. But then there are so many galaxies and like it, it makes things quite hard to like digest mentally, mm. you know, and like that's why I often find the statistics so interesting because you're just coming in at like, well, is something true? You know, you need to really rely on on robust stats to do that. Um, and we're kind of in an era of astronomy where you can, you have sample sizes that are so big. I mean, if you if you take a patch of sky the size of like the moon, which is about your thumbnail at like arm's length, you know, there'll, there'll easily be like 10,000 galaxies in that like tiny little patch. So there's like no shortage of galaxies and every one of them is, you know, has different conditions. So there's always kind of something you're looking for. Mm. But the... I know it's a bit off point what you're saying, but the uh, the next generation telescope, the next like one that's coming up, that's going to be you know cost I think is like ten billion dollars or something, and it's way over budget. So there's no shortage of funding in certain you know telescopes cost a lot of money, yeah, uh, especially if they go to space. Um, I just mean more specifically if you're like looking to do a postdoc in Ireland, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, but the the top end telescopes like. There's one called the Square Kilometre Array that's being set up in, in uh, Australia, and it's quite similar to the telescope I use in, in, the, in the setup. But like, that will generate more data per second than like, was on the entire internet in 2005. So <laughs> admittedly, the internet is still quite early, but that's like every second. And so like, you, astronomy has this interesting thing where you're pulling together like some stats you have because you need to know like, how to handle all your data, but then you need to know... like how your instrument works. You need like electronics and yeah, obviously you need to have some understanding of physics and you end up pulling from a lot of different areas. So I kind of, I don't see it as, as a pure subject in that you're always, yeah, you can often meet astronomers who have very specific skill sets and they have very little in common with each other. And people who are into machine learning is kind of flavor of the month. I presume it's similar in, in biology, but everyone, if there's a problem, just machine learn your way out of it. Um, <laughs> But that's interesting, and that means you can go down that avenue if you want, and you can just learn machine learning. So yeah, there's the, the freedom there is cool. And like you know, even when you were talking about patches of the sky, and that has like you know so many billions of galaxies. Like, do you ever like I don't know, read a paper or read something like that, and you're like, I am so insignificant in this planet. Like, yeah, but yeah, but I think uh, well, I think when you get desensitized to it a little bit, you know, mm. in, in the same way, I'm sure interesting things about you know your research. That you tell someone they're like wow you're like yeah it's fine yeah we get, yeah we get where we are now but i mean definitely that was one of the the driving factors originally is you know it gives you a sense of perspective and i'd say i give i would be interesting to know if astronomers are more like inclusive in a like global civilization kind of way just because of having constantly seeing this like aspect that we're all so small and we all like are together we're actually one community on earth and it's and you know the time we live is so short, mm. like so. That would be interesting to to know. But um, yeah, I guess that kind of pulled in all like the meaning of life questions as well. <laughs> you know, people are always like, "I just couldn't do it because what's the point?" But I mean, I don't know. I think like if you the questions that start with like, "What's the point of life if we live for you know so short or we're so small?" You know, they they can seem absurd if you look at them from the opposite side. So like, would your life have meaning? if you were as big as the sun and you lived for a billion years 
And like the answer is no. So like, you know, the meaning of your life isn't derived from how big you are, how long you live, but like, you know, just, I guess, doing something that, that you find fulfilling from it. So, um, but the, in terms of finding it all inspiring, like personally, again, like I, like things like statistics and probability for me, have had much more of a feeling of, of awe or just like disbelief or like, you know, there's the common birthday problem of how many people do you need in a room mm. to for two of them on the same birthday and it's only 23 and like just things like that you're just like how can that be right and like for one other thing that that we, my friends were talking about the other day is you know there's more ways to shuffle a deck of cards than there are grains of sand on earth you know and god like, really <laughs> yeah and, and not only that but like if the entire solar system if like the sun was just made of sand if the whole a whole solar system made of sand there would still be more ways to shuffle the deck of cards and there's only 52 cards but it's just because 52 factorial is so big. And like, for me, it's those kind of facts that kind of always got me in terms of awe more so than the the size of astronomy and stuff. Probably because I, yeah, it's desensitized, but maybe it hasn't sunk in, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I mean, there was a bit of philosophy in there as well. I appreciated your answer to, I don't think I meant it to be a meaning of life question, but I appreciate it all the same. Um, and I know you're quite interested as well in like science communication. And actually that's how we know each other is through Pint of Science, which is a SciCom festival that's run every year uh, in pubs across Ireland and the world. But, you know, why are you interested in, in science communication? And I know you're also kind of involved with Bright Club, which is, I mean, you might explain what Bright Club is because I just watched one of your videos there before I came on, which was gas. Yeah, so Bright Club is a science stand-up comedy night that's it's run I think in a few places but in Ireland it's run by uh, set up by Jessamyn Fairfield uh, so I just did it a few times as in there was I was like this is an excuse to do stand-up comedy but I yeah like the reason the motivation is ultimately because there's so many interesting things about space that people don't know and and it can seem prohibitive to to even think of studying it but like it's it's uh, it's quite doable as well but yeah, I mean, I don't know. Why did I do it? <laughs> Partially, like, in terms of selfish reasons, you know, it was like, this is a great distraction from from PhD work. And and I think now that I, having been outside of academia, like, there's not a lot of areas of society where people care about what you do as much as they do if you're in astrophysics. Because... Like, you know, always in the news, like if, if there's some kind of black hole discovery or whatever, that will, that will tend to make, like, like people are interested in it. Like, mm. um, but if you're in business or whatever, people don't, it's harder for, uh, to break in something as a news story. So like often people just want to hear what you have to say, uh, or like the, the research you're doing and the work you're doing. So like, I think the reason why Bright Club works is based on that entirely because scientists tend to get fun jobs. You know, obviously, the day-to-day trades off a lot in terms of actual tasks and, like, the workload and all that kind of thing. But, yeah, Bright Club was just a fun opportunity. I was like, look, I don't think if I'm, depending on what I do in the future, I'll be have an opportunity to stand up and people will, will care for me to to talk about what I'm, what I'm doing. So it was just more of a, a chance to do it. But, like, yeah, also that there's so much research happening in, in Ireland, even in astronomy, that, that people don't know about and... and like, you know, I don't blame them. They don't have, have time to be looking up all the different interests, uh, research interests in Ireland. But like um, the telescope in Burr, Lofar, you know, you can go like visit it and it looks pretty cool. It's quite futuristic. There's no dish to it. It's just like a flat black tarmac or like a, mm. I don't know, tarp. 
But on the site there, there's another telescope um, called the Leviathan, and that was the biggest telescope in the world from like 1947, I think, to 1920 something. So like, uh, yeah, just that Ireland had the biggest telescope in the world for like 70 years. And like, you know, yeah, over probably like 100 years ago now. But um, it's amazing that you can even have something that's the biggest in the world for so long because like, you know, if you get a new phone or whatever, there's going to be the next best one is going to be out next year. But that was the best in the world for a really long time. Yeah, it does. Um, and there's, there's plenty of, of, of interesting things about astronomy that like, yeah, it, it's worth sharing. Yeah, I actually, I've, I've been to Burr Castle because it's in the grounds of the, the castle as well. And I remember seeing that telescope and I, I knew there was a telescope in Burr but I, I remember seeing the big one, like as in the, the old one. I was like, that's mad they're using that one still. Because I didn't know, like, because all over Burr Castle, there is like, you know, Ilo Far or whatever. This is, you know, the kind of funded telescope. And I was shocked that this was the, <laughs> the telescope. Obviously, it's not. <laughs> the other one is smaller, isn't it? It's kind of like low to the ground, kind of. Yeah, yeah, it is. It, no, it looks like a lot of black boxes in a field. And then some aerials that people... It kind of has a look of people, some aerials, people just stuck in a field randomly. Because <laughs> all it low far is essentially is the same like how, way your car antenna works. So if you took a lot of car antennas and put them on the ground, they're just antennas. And in fact, they're also like operate at the same radio frequency as uh, as your car radio. So like you, have, while using low far, like, the first thing we would do is filter out the radio stations. Otherwise, you're picking up back any. Really? <laughs> yeah, like and you couldn't. You couldn't listen to them, but you can see the signal and it's like completely wipes out your, so you can't do any, ast- any astronomy at like 98 megahertz because, because the radio's there. So. Oh my God, that's gas. And like with the, with the telescope, are you working with loads of different people then kind of, because I know it's linked up with different sites, but like, are you constantly working with people in different sites or is it more, you have an Irish team and they work together? Yeah, no. So it actually, it splits up a different kind of way in that everyone in Ireland yeah, we're all on teams, but people in Ireland don't work on the same thing. So I'm actually not on any teams with anyone in Ireland, or I wouldn't work closely with them. But everything in astronomy is collaborative now in the most sense. I mean, obviously, there, there are some exceptions. But if you want to have a really big telescope that costs like billions of euro, that runs in many different countries at the same time, you know, you need hundreds of people working, employed full time just to maintain it and, and produce the data and then also even doing your science, you know, I think over time, certainly in academia, people are becoming more niche. And I always love looking back at, you know, even astronomers, but just scientists back like in the 1900s, they were just like, they'd do some maths, then they'd go off, figure out some biology. And like, you know, you could just be a kind of a polymath in the truest sense. But now in astronomy, like you just, you just go super specific on, on certain types of things that you would publish about. But and you would work with certain people on it, um, but even like uh, I think the couple of papers I've been on have had like two hundred authors, or uh, where I guess you wouldn't work closely with them all, but there could easily be ten or twenty people that would work closely on on ideas. Um, and I suppose I've had people on who've you know kind of finished their PhD, and I always kind of ask you know how was that as a time in your life? But you're in a unique position in that you're not finished yet you're nearly there I think you're right enough but like how are you finding it and you know that was me two months ago so I can empathize well yeah I'd be interested to hear how you you think how it relates kind of current postdoc postdoc mm. life I think I for a long time I was like it's gonna be fine like it'll be it'll straightforward how how much work could it be 
but I just didn't want to have to actually put pen to paper, so to speak. So yeah, I mean, uh, the other thing is uh, if you're you know doing a master's in undergrad or whatever, you usually get very specific guidelines about reports and that kind of thing. But a thesis, it can be quite daunting because it's like an open book, so to speak, but you can, you know, what length do you want it to be? What do you want to talk about? How do you want to like phrase it? It's just like all you. And like, it, you just end up questioning it all. You're like, is this, will someone just tell me how to do it? I mean, they're very quick with answers for like page margins and that kind of thing, but it can be quite hard to just form a narrative and pull, you know, running around for four years doing different things. And then you have to just pull it into a nice story that has a the start, middle, and end. And that's just partially because like examiners are human and we're designed to like start, middle, and end stories. You yeah. know, even when the truth is I did this six months, didn't work. Then I did these two things. They all I did them at the same time and then this had nothing to do with it, but I did that at the end and it wasn't fine. You know? So I think I'm finding it hard to just pull things together and then I don't know if this happens to other people, but looking at stuff I did six months ago and just even stuff I wrote, I and mean, I know I wrote, I'm like, what does that mean? What, what was I talking about? Did I, you know, I, I find it very hard to rem- remind myself what what I was doing. Stuff that I know, I thought like, I will definitely not forget this. And then you do. So uh, it's just, yeah, it's hard to, to, to manage it, but I'm nearly there, as you say. So uh, like, what's your deadline or how, how far are you off? So I have six, submitting in six weeks to jobs short after that, yeah. Oh, I didn't realize it's that sick. Well, Jesus, thanks a for coming on the podcast. <laughs> with, end, with that. end of August, yeah. Yeah, like, like I think I found writing up really tough. I find it very tough from the sense that I wasn't used to just being on a laptop all the time. And, you know, I, my day-to-day completely changed. And I wrote up a lot of mine over Christmas, which was pretty grim. So, and, and I completely emphasize exactly what you're saying. There are so many, like, guidelines about how wide your page should be and you know like how your table of contents should look and you have to have some logo on the front but like all the rest of it is so open to you which is very daunting but uh no you'll, you'll definitely get there um, and I suppose one of my last questions I like to ask people Sean is you know if you weren't a scientist and this might be slightly different for you because I know you're about to start a job and something that's not related to astrophysics but I suppose if you didn't, if your life didn't end up how it did and you're doing your PhD and you're doing your research in astrophysics, where do you think or what do you think you would have been doing right now? Yeah, to be honest, that's one of the worst things about life is that you can't like live parallel careers (laughs) doing different things. Like I would love to, you know, just, well, be an astronaut, obviously. And I think that's kind of cheating because that's in the astro thing. But but I'd say most people in astronomy would like to be astronauts. But uh, even a pilot would be really cool or you know, just mm-hmm. go to India and be a monk for three months or, or like a year. Like there's so many things that would be just cool to to try. I don't know. Uh, yeah, in terms of actual solid careers, it, it would it, it would very much, yeah, it would very much depend, I guess, when you're, what the state of the world is at the time. <laughs> now I'd say you're going to, it'd be so cool to be like, I'm going to make vaccines or, or I'd say certainly the COVID stuff is influencing what a lot of kids have as their dream jobs and that kind of thing. Oh, that's true, yeah. I never, I never wanted to be a footballer or anything. Though. I didn't have the hand-eye coordination for sports, so all that's out the window. And like, would you have liked to have been an astronaut? Like, seriously? Yeah, I'd still go to space, definitely. I wouldn't do the like one-way... One-way ticket. Yeah, but um, yeah, like it would be, be kind of cool. I mean, I always like roller coasters and that kind of thing. I, I, I did skydiving and stuff, so I'd be like well up for the... There's a telescope in Antarctica as well called Ice Cube, where it's it's just a square kilometer square kilometer of ice 
that they have some sensors in that they're just looking for a type of particle called neutrinos to appear. But you can do like three month stints down in Antarctica, you know, where you obviously can't go outside during winter and you have to talk to four people in a tin. And so like, I think that's probably the closest you could get mm. being a, an, astro- uh, an astronaut without leaving. Oh, that's very cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, I, I follow the International Space Station over on Twitter and I'm always just fascinated. Like, do you ever watch the videos where they're like on the, they're doing their press conferences, but they're like floating at the same time? It's, it's mad. Yeah, the zero G, it'd be just worth it for the, the, the novelty. But you'd want to like who you work with. And, you know, I don't know if I'd pass all of the, <laughs> the tests for it. You probably have to be such a very good personality in terms of like, relaxed compliant and, and be able to to survive yeah no definitely but um yeah sean i suppose that's it i don't want to take up any more of your time but uh thanks again for coming on the podcast yeah thanks a million it was fun so that's it for another week of unraveling science if you enjoyed this episode don't forget to like and subscribe on apple podcasts spotify acast or wherever you get your podcasts 